This is LifeSpeak, a podcast about well-being, mental health, and building resilience through knowledge. Here's Marianne Weisenthal. I'm speaking today with occupational psychologist, Dr. Joe Yarker. Dr. Yarker works with individuals, teams, managers, as well as work and health practitioners to promote fulfilling, healthy, and productive working lives, particularly during times of challenge. She's also the director of Affinity Health at Work, a consultancy and research group, and she holds a tenured academic post at Burbank University of London. Dr. Yarker joins me today from London, England. Welcome to the LifeSpeak podcast. Hi, it's wonderful to be here. What exactly does a fulfilling and healthy workplace look like? That's a great first question. To me, a fulfilling workplace is one that allows someone to work at their best, somewhere that someone can work to their strengths and where they're supported to develop, where we have good jobs, where we've got good line management, and also where we have a good work environment that gives us the tools and the resources and the physical space to do our job well. I think one of the things that we look at is our igloo framework. So this is something that we've developed with Sheffield University, and it helps us to consider all of the different resources that we need. So we talk about the individual, the group, the leader, the organizational policies and practices, and then what's going on outside of the organization. So we can think about all of those different resources that can really support a good, healthy work environment. Has that changed much since before the pandemic? I think it's an interesting thing. The fundamentals of what is a good job haven't really changed. I think what we can see, though, is that people have become a little bit more tuned to their needs and what they need from work. But also we can see that people are so much more exhausted. They're depleted having managed the demands of the pandemic, all that's been going on at home, all that's been going on at work and having to adapt the way that we've been working over the last couple of years. So while the fundamentals haven't changed, we've become more attuned. And I think there are two particular things that we've seen change. One is flexibility and the access and the demand for flexibility at work. Before the pandemic, that was a privilege of the few, really. I know that um, certainly in my early years, I had to really fight to get flexible working, whereas now it's almost a given in many jobs that can be done at home. And certainly for younger employers, it's something that they're looking for from their employer. And the challenge with that now is that we don't create a two-tier workforce. So one where we have people who can work at home, but also those perhaps in the service industry within the health sector that can't. And that's really a, a big challenge for employers. I think the second thing And perhaps most importantly, I see is that we've also had a little bit of insight into what it feels like to be vulnerable, to feel unwell and have to continue working. Many people have caught COVID. Many people have experienced long COVID or know somebody that has. And with that, it means that ill health is actually on the agenda for perhaps the first time. Much of our our research has been looking at how we support people who are unwell. Perhaps they've been through cancer treatment, they have back pain, mental health, how we help them get back into work, how we help them thrive at work and continue to sustain jobs. And I think one of the biggest challenges that we have when we're supporting those individuals is that people in the workplace don't often appreciate how hard it is to work when you're not feeling 100%. So much of our management strategies are around optimal performance, around thriving, around growth. 
But actually, there's huge numbers of our workforce that really struggle to work well every day, either through managing pain, navigating their commute to work, having difficult conversations about what they might need to manage their health and work. And I think whilst COVID has been really unfortunate in many, many ways, actually, so many people have had insight into what it is like to be unwell and what that feels like to work when you're unwell, that really we can gain some benefit from that. It's interesting that you say that about how it sort of shone a light on being physically unwell and trying to work. But, you know, with mental health, which has also been something that, you know, employers are discussing more, that we're all discussing more and has been much more out in the open. Do you think the same applies with mental health? Because mental health is always that thing that most of the time we can't see it. So we feel like we need to perhaps prove that we're not well. But when you can say, oh, I have long COVID or I'm recovering from COVID, well, everyone just says, oh, yes, yes, of course. But if you're really having a difficult time emotionally, do you think that employers and colleagues are still open and supportive to that? I think certainly more so. Over the last two, three years, people have really been on a a journey in their own mental health in terms of the challenges that they have had to face. And I think we see now many more senior leaders recognising that things aren't always plain sailing and mental health can present itself in so many different ways. It can present itself in changes in our behaviour, in the way that we physically feel, as well as the way that, that we feel emotionally. And so I think people have a much more nuanced understanding. One of the challenges that we do see, though, is how that then translates into action. There is still a huge gap in the way that we see employers and policies and practices really supporting people to have more flexible work opportunities, more graduated returns when they're coming back, having been unwell, having training to have those conversations so that you can really access the help that you need at the time that you need it. You counsel organizations in creating healthier work environments. How have you been able to do that within your own organization? What are some of the challenges there? So we're a small organization. We're also largely remote. So we connect often over over Zoom or Teams. We also have a lot of people who are career changers in our organization. So they are juggling dual careers or childcare, older care. And that has been really quite tough at times to support people going through the pandemic and having all of those different demands. But one of the things that we really make sure that we do is we have real regular check-ins so that we think about how are people maintaining their healthy habits? How are they designing work in a way that really supports them to balance their work and their home demands? So we have a completely flexible policy. Everyone works the hours that suits them around client meetings. We have unlimited holidays and flexible schedules so that people can have term time working or job share if that's what they're they're keen to do. We also make sure that we really double down on social connection. So whilst we're remote, we check in on the phone or online as often as we can do, as, as often as needed. So we have regular points throughout the week, but we also just make sure that we do take the time to to pick up the phone and have a chat rather than an email sometimes if if we can. I think one of the things that we also prioritise is is learning. So we know that learning new things really helps people to to feel fulfilled. And so many of the people that work with us are also studying on doctorates, on on master's courses. And that's something that that we 
support them in doing as well and help them to, to manage their work alongside that additional learning so they can feel that they are engaging in something that is really for them, but also can advance their career and help them travel in the direction that they would like to. How did you decide this was going to be the focus of your work? So through school and university, I had so many different jobs. I worked in a jigsaw cutting factory. I was a secretary. I worked at a call center. I did ironing jobs. And I think one of the things that I was always fascinating about was how people behave in different ways when they're at work, how people love different things, how they really find other aspects difficult. And I think one of the things that always struck me was when people were talking in their breaks um, they loved their colleagues, but they found the management or the structures so challenging. And after I got to university, I got my first major job and I was in the city and I was working in this huge, beautiful building. And I thought, oh, I've made it. I'm going to have all of these things that I, I'd really hoped for. And I remember just getting in the lift and looking around me and thinking people are really not as happy as I thought they would be getting this, you know, getting to be in this amazing organization and and at the pinnacle of their careers. And so it really made me want to reflect on, well, what is it that makes people happy and healthy at work? What is it about work that really helps people to feel fulfilled? And that's taken me on a journey through further research, through collaborating with lots of people across the globe to, to really get to the bottom of what is good work? And importantly, how do we help people when they're not necessarily feeling at their best, when they're going through periods of challenge? And it just certainly keeps me on my toes because there's always so many more things to learn. Um, but work is such an important part of our lives for our financial security, for our meaning. Um, the, the more we can understand to make work better is all the better for me, really. What does make people happy at work? So I think people have different needs. But essentially what we know are the ingredients of a good job are where we have work demands that are manageable, where we have the resources to do the job well, where we feel supported in our endeavours, where we know that we're encouraged and our line manager has our back and our colleagues are there to, to support us along the way. We also know that a good job is one where change is managed. We know that change happens. It's going to happen for, for the rest of our careers. But when we don't have any control over that change, when we don't have any insight into contributing to how that changes it's done then that can be really challenging so we know that there are a number of different ingredients that make up a good job and one of the things that we're really passionate about through our work is trying to help people develop the language to understand what's going on in their job to then make some changes that can help them achieve a better job a better work environment I think what's been interesting in hearing you speak, you know, you've created some videos with us at LifeSpeak, and I, I find it really helpful to hear you talk about the fact that in actual fact, employees, doesn't matter at what level you're at in your role, that you have some power to make change, that you can take ownership of your work, you can take some control of what you're doing, even at the smallest level, and that that can improve your satisfaction at work. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so I think one of the things we often do is we think, oh, work is overwhelming, or this aspect of work is really difficult, but we don't really sit back and, and use any frameworks that can help us unpick it. So in terms of helping people build that agency to have conversations to make a difference to their work, I think one of the first steps is really sitting back and 
reflecting on what about work is difficult. Can I write that down? Can I articulate it? If my manager's not being supportive, what is it that they're doing? What's the behavior? What's the action? What's the policy that's in the way? If we're able to be very specific and recommend a change and identify why that change would benefit our productivity, our ability to do our job, then often we're able to make that influence. And I think people don't recognize that they're able to make that difference in the way that they work, or they don't know how to have that conversation. And the more specific we can be, the better able we will be to have that conversation in the first place. We've been hearing a lot lately about the great resignation, employees leaving their jobs at higher rates than ever. Is that really true? Are people leaving their jobs more than ever? And if so, why do you think that's happening? It's a really complicated picture. I think we can certainly see in surveys across the the globe and and labour force data that people are resigning at the moment. There is also a counter argument to say, well, actually, that's a lag because people didn't resign during the pandemic. And therefore, really, over the next couple of years, it will start to equal out again. But I do think there are a couple of reasons why we can see it now. First of all, I think for some people, they had the opportunity during the pandemic to reset and to reconnect with what's important to them. People have moved out of cities, they've moved into the countryside, they've thought about what they want from their job, what they want from their life. So there's certainly been a reset for some. But I think for others, there's certainly an element of feeling burnt out and their mental health is being pushed to the edge and, and to capacity in terms of what they can cope with from work because of what they've had to deal with in the home environment, with homeschooling, with changes to working patterns, and then also those additional demands at at work. And we can certainly see for some sectors, there's also this challenge in terms of cost of living. So many countries across the globe are experiencing cost of living crisis. And when you think about many of our health and care professionals that have been working through the pandemic, so very, very much been a core part of our ability to to cope over the last couple of years, they're depleted in their resources, but also they're really struggling with finances now. And is it really worth it? And I think people are making that choice too. The American Psychological Association recently released its 2022 Work and Wellbeing Survey, and, and it looked at how you know the workplace has changed throughout the pandemic. And one of the statistics in this survey was interesting. It's 81% of individuals said that they would be looking for workplaces that support mental health when they're seeking jobs. How can employers design a workplace that does that? So it's a fascinating statistic, isn't it? And I'd be really interested to see what people were looking for and how they how they made the decision that the organization was one that really supported mental health but when we're looking at uh, organizations and supporting them through that journey we specifically look at three different types of activity so we look at what organizations are doing to prevent mental ill health and and work stress in the first place what they're doing to develop individuals and also what they're doing to support people so When you're looking at at the organisation, I might be asking questions around how does the organisation assess and manage risks to mental health? How do they report on mental health and well-being? Do they report to the board? Do they report to shareholders about the status of well-being within their workforce? What actions do they take to monitor those workloads, to link staff experience to actions that, that really make a difference? 
And also what happens when things don't change? We know so many organisations do employee surveys year after year with pulse surveys and so on. But really, what actions are being taken to make a difference to the way that leaders are behaving, to the way that people are feeling about their jobs? So that's the prevention side. But also what training and development do they have in place? Yes, they might have mental health awareness, but also do they train managers to have good conversations? Do they discuss psychosocial risks? So the the psychological and social risks that are inherent in jobs. Do they support return to work effectively? Do they talk about neurodiverse conditions and how these are supported? And so what training do people have to really ensure that they are educated and have confidence to have conversations about some of the challenging aspects of of work and how they can then support people to work well in difficult situations. And then finally, what support do they have in place? So they might have an employee assistance program. They might have in-house counsellors. They might also pay time off for appointments. So really, how do we support people in the workplace when they need it? And those are the kinds of questions I'd probably be asking an employer to see how broadly they support mental health. Employee mental health, you know, really became top of mind for many companies at the start of the pandemic. Do you think this is something that will last? I really am hopeful that it will. I think what we have seen is that mental health has become a business critical issue. So the costs of ill health are just too significant for employers to ignore. And certainly with organisations that we're working with, it's fast becoming a board priority. The World Health Organization have looked at statistics across the different countries and identified that one in four people experience mental ill health each year. So depression, anxiety and other forms of mental health. So huge numbers of our populations are experiencing struggle. We also know that 12 billion working days are likely to be lost between now and 2030. And so that's 50 million years of work. And so the more that we can do to support people, to manage their mental health, to manage work whilst they're also experiencing times of challenge, all the better. And we also know that the more that we can train and educate people and provide the right support, we're going to have business returns. So some great research by Deloitte has shown that for every $1 invested, there's a a $4 return in terms of improved productivity and also health. So the more that we can do in this area, the absolute better. That's a huge return. It really is, isn't it? And related to the costs. So in Europe alone, depression is around about £617 billion a year in terms of lost productivity, in terms of absenteeism and presenteeism costs, healthcare costs and social welfare costs. So it really is just staggering. It's something that businesses can't afford to ignore. Yeah. So that brings me to my next question, which is really, if you're someone who's looking for a job and and mental health is a big priority for you, I mean, I'd like to think it's a priority for everybody, but if it's especially a priority for you to find a workplace that supports that, what kind of questions can you be asking before you accept a position? So I think, first of all, I would be interested to understand whether they monitor mental health within the workplace and how they do that. So how do they measure it? How do they know whether there is a concern? And also then what provisions do they have in place to support people that are struggling with their mental health? 
I'd also want to know from the outset, though, how do they monitor it? How do they report and have accountability over mental health? So it's one thing to say that we have lots of provision in place. You've got access to a counsellor should you need it. It's a very different thing to be able to say that we monitor on a regular basis how many people are experiencing mental distress. It's a different thing to be able to say we monitor how people get back into work and we have this program that can support people who are managing mental health conditions to really work and thrive in the work environment. And so I'd want to know what are they actually doing to really make a difference? So how could you maybe pose that question in an interview? I know I'm putting you on the spot. Yeah, (laughs) I think it's a a great, great question. I think one of the things I would just have is, could you tell me a little bit about the activities that you have in place to protect and promote mental health? And that way it's quite open, but you can see whether they say, oh, we have some training, or you can see whether the response is much more structured and there's a really clear strategy that combines a whole range of different activities. I don't think I've ever had anyone ask me that in an interview. And I think that's a really great question. Yeah, I think it would be, be a good one, wouldn't it? Yeah, it would. It's me. And also, me think. I think a real test as well. Obviously, the person running the well-being strategy or the health and safety strategy should be able to answer it. But actually, if the interviewer can answer it as well, then you know that you're in, in for a good organization. Mm. In the early months of the pandemic, a lot of jobs were were celebrated as heroic, you know, frontline workers, grocery clerks, delivery workers, you know, nurses, of course, you know, and, and now it seems that so many are facing abuse and criticism from the general public. What can those employees do to reduce emotional exhaustion? So we're definitely seeing this. We're seeing that many groups of staff are feeling that there is certainly unrealistic expectations, not always abuse, but unrealistic expectations on what they're able to deliver and also continue to deliver. I think I'm a little bit cautious about saying what can they do to support themselves because I'm always very keen to ensure that we have a really whole system approach rather than just it focus on the individual. But in terms of those individuals, I think really doubling down to think about their own healthy habits, how they're prioritizing looking after themselves and taking time to look after those basic foundations. So are they eating well? Are they resting well? Are they taking time to do something that they really want to do that they know restores them? Are they spending time with their friends and so on? And those are the basic habits, the foundations that often what we saw through the pandemic, people didn't do because they just didn't feel they had time, and particularly those that were on the front line. So really getting back into a routine where we prioritise those fundamentals is key. But also we know in many of those jobs that practices around self-compassion, around psychological flexibility, around gratitude are also really beneficial. So having space in our working day or provision to build those skills is also really important. And what can employers be doing to support their staff? I mean, you know, you go into shops now and you see signs that say, please remember to be kind, we're understaffed. But, you know, obviously that that's not enough. What, what else can they be doing? I think one of the things that we've seen from looking at effective workplace well-being interventions is that to look after the staff, what you need to be doing is also allowing them time in work time to do the things that are good for them. So if we want people to learn new skills around looking after their mental health, 
we can't expect them to do it at the weekend or on their own time. We need them to do it in work. So I think, number one, employers need to ensure that staff are being given adequate time during their working day to build their skills, but also that they're given time to restore and replenish their resources so that they're better able to manage the work day to day. I think the other side is that we really need to stop asking people to do more and less. And so for employers, it's about really thinking about what are the key priorities? And if we can't fulfill those, we need to be honest about that. And we need to drop some of our our goals as an organization and we need to change and pivot. Um, I think what we see is so many people are being asked to continually do more with fewer resources and that just can't go on because otherwise we're going to have a burnt out workforce and that's no good for anybody. I want to talk a little bit about Generation Z. So that's those born between 1997 and 2012, who are now, of course, in the workforce. And I read an interesting article on BBC.com that said that Generation Z workers are demanding more from workplaces, more pay, more time off, flexibility to work remotely, greater social and environmental responsibility. And they're willing to walk away from employers if their needs aren't met, (laughs) to sound very dramatic about it. How do you think employers have been adapting to attract this younger cohort? It's a real mix from what we can see. So we can see some some businesses really reacting to this and trying to think about how they can be more flexible, how they can create more social spaces so people come into work for social events, but they work from home. We can also see this raising awareness of well-being and I suppose the the voice towards social and environmental priorities. So these are the things that we are aiming to prioritise. I think one of the things that we don't always see is that move beyond performative behaviours to actually taking action. So there's a lot of lip service that goes on in this in this um, area. And so to keep that Generation Z worker in the workplace, we're really going to have to see employers taking action. Um, One of the really big challenges I think we have, though, around flexibility is often what we want is always what's good for us. So to learn from from others in in the work environment, it can be so valuable to be in the office, to just pick up those nuanced conversations that you don't really get the opportunity to, to hear and listen into when you're working in your lounge or at your kitchen table. We also don't have those serendipitous meetings where you you get to learn about what's going on in the organization or you you just get to network in a different way when you're in work and so I think one of the things we really need to be careful of is not really thinking about what's good for us in the long run absolutely it's nice not to have to get on the train it's nice to be able to go for a run at at five o'clock as soon as you switch off from work but also it's really valuable to have good strong networks within your organization and it's great to be able to pick up lots of new skills along the way and so we don't want to overshoot with our flexibility I think is the key thing. How have you seen that the workplace has changed the most throughout your career? I think at the very beginning there was certainly a focus on physical health and safety and that was taken as a given and I think over Gradually, gradually over the last 10 years and certainly accelerated by the pandemic is that we're developing a more nuanced understanding of the psychological health 
um, of people. And that's a really important thing. So understanding the different aspects of work and the way that work is designed and managed and how that impacts our health and well-being has certainly become something that comes to the fore. And why are you so passionate about what you do? I think ultimately it comes down to fairness. I think that everybody should have the opportunity to work in a way that is fulfilling for them and enables them to thrive, to have those financial security benefits, but also to do a job that makes them feel good and, and to make make them feel valued. And so understanding how we can protect people's mental health, how we can support people to balance work and all of the different demands that life throws at us is just so important to me. And what keeps you feeling hopeful and optimistic during what are difficult and unprecedented times? I think ultimately people want to do the best for others. And that really does keep me optimistic. I think one of the things that we really saw during the pandemic is people rallied around. They wanted to look after their colleagues. They wanted to look after their friends. And we saw huge amounts of activity. And that really does keep me optimistic for the future. People are always keen to learn. They just need the time and the space to do it. Dr. Yarker, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. For more about this episode, go to lifespeak.com slash podcast.